Have you ever thought to yourself, I wish I knew how to find the best grants for me? Grants I actually had a chance of winning. Maybe I'm just not a good enough writer to win grants. I just can't seem to get people to see the value of my work in my community. I know my work is incredibly important. If only I could get more grant makers to see that, I could do so much more good in the world. Well, if you have had any of those thoughts, I recommend checking out my comprehensive online grant writing course, Grant Writing Made Easy. In this self-paced six-module course, I will teach you how to find the perfect grant opportunities for you, write well-researched, compelling grant proposals, and build long-lasting relationships with funders that set you up for future success. Grant Writing Made Easy is the fastest way to learn everything you need to know to write grant proposals that help you fund the incredible work you do and leave your mark on the world. So if any of that sounds interesting to you, if you enroll now, you'll also get these exclusive bonuses. Bonus number one, 30 days of writing exercises emailed to you. Bonus number two, access to our private members-only Facebook group. Bonus number three, a $600 coupon code for a one-year subscription to GrantStation's Grants Database. And bonus number four, 11 live online writing workshops per year. And you get lifetime access to all of this. So head on over to www.writegoodco.com forward slash grant writing pro to learn more. You can choose one payment or you can even choose monthly payments and get started for just $97 today. Again, head on over to writegoodco.com forward slash grant writing pro. Hello, and welcome to the Write Good Podcast. I'm Dr. Krista Kurlinkis, owner of Write Good Grant Writing and Communications for the Greater Good. And today's episode is on the history of nonprofits. So the last few episodes that we've done here have been on the current state of affairs in the nonprofit world. So the state of grant seeking and the state of nonprofits in general. And all of that is extremely important to your nonprofit and grants strategy, but it's also important to think about how things came to be the way they are today. Of course, history matters because we can learn from it. We can learn to continue doing things that have worked well in the past, perhaps, and develop new approaches when it becomes clear that what we've done in the past isn't working as well now. Learning the history of nonprofits in the U.S. is also valuable because it helps us think about what is going on now and what comes next. So again, we're trying to recognize cause and effect and see how the larger global and national trends, how the economy, political thought, social issues all impact and change the state of nonprofits in this country. So although this episode is not going to be an exhaustive historical study of the nonprofit sector in the U.S., we are going to hit some of the highlights. So whether you're new to nonprofits or have been working in nonprofits for years and just never really thought about their origins, I hope that you find this episode useful but also interesting um, because it's always important to know where you come from. All right, so let's start at the beginning. 
Of course, the charitable drive has existed throughout human history, but the nonprofit organization is a more modern development. Before the founding of the United States, people who lived in colonies formed voluntary organizations. In 1831, Alexis de Tocqueville remarked that Americans of all ages, conditions, and dispositions unite together. So there is this idea that as the U.S. government became stronger and more organized in the early 1800s, voluntary organizations continued because they filled gaps in social welfare programs where the nascent government's efforts were insufficient. Voluntary organizations arose in the U.S. to fill in gaps in service that the government was not taking care of. Private foundations, as we know them today, began in the late 19th century. Andrew Carnegie and his Gospel of Wealth encouraged wealthy industrialists like himself to give away much of their surplus revenues. And many foundations that wealthy industrialists like Carnegie, Rockefeller, and many others still exist today. So from the late 1800s up until 1920, the United States was in what is called the progressive area. So this is a period of increased social activism and advocacy, as well as political reform. So a lot of the things that you're familiar with right now, like you know suffrage for women, so the right to vote for women, Um, Prohibition of alcohol and child labor laws were formed during this time. Throughout the 19th century, nonprofits grew, but most nonprofits at this time were churches or religious private schools. Church membership grew from 17% of U.S. residents at the time of the American Revolution to 51% in 1906, which is largely responsible for the growth of the nonprofit sector to comprise about 1% of the total U.S. economy at that time. It was only in the late 1800s that the number of nonprofit hospitals began to grow significantly, as did the number of nonprofit museums and performing arts groups. At this time, however, state governments did deny charitable charters to many nonprofits on the basis of nationality and religion. So, for example, throughout the 19th century, many states didn't allow Catholics to form nonprofits because they thought these organizations would be controlled by the Pope. And southern states didn't allow nonprofits because they disliked corporate privilege, but also because they wanted to limit literacy and the discussion of slavery. So back then, they were worried about you know fomenting an uprising by allowing people to organize and discuss social issues. But throughout this time, many women, white women, used their privileged status in churches to advocate for social causes, including abolition and the temperance movement. It was also during the early 1900s that we saw the United States' first major fundraising campaign, and this was initiated by Charles Sumner Ward and Frank L. Pierce, leaders of the YMCA. So they developed this fundraising system that had never been used before. So they created a time limit for this fundraising campaign to construct a new building in Washington, D.C. 
They hired a publicist to manage the campaign, and they even used paid advertising with corporate sponsors and celebrities. And this campaign is what sparked the YMCA School of Fundraising. And this allowed their organization to expand from local chapters to one national organization that big donors and supporters could really get involved with. Now, the nonprofit sector grew considerably between 1900 and 1960 overall, and by 1960, it employed 3.7% of the U.S. workforce. So that's up from the 1% that I just mentioned in 1906. Also at this time, there was a shift from small religious hospitals to larger research hospitals and medical centers that were nonprofits. Also in the early 1900s, the Protestant domination um, of higher education started to wane. And by 1930, most of the modern public research universities had been established. So again, those are considered nonprofit institutions as well. Now, as Catholics gained the right to govern their own nonprofits, the number of Catholic schools also grew, again, contributing to major growth in the nonprofit sector. Now, many nonprofits also began setting professional and educational standards during this period, um, including creating the College Board and the Educational Testing Service. So, you know those um, organizations that do the SAT and the ACT? This is when they came to be. Even during this period of growth, there were some limiting factors, including a rule that no New Deal funds could go to private welfare organizations. So unlike today, where different federal grants and funding can go to private nonprofits, then they were not permitted to. And at that time, there was also little support for performing arts organizations because Americans didn't have that expendable income to pay for tickets for things like operas and theaters. Furthermore, many states still had restrictive laws for who could actually start a nonprofit. For example, in New York, nonprofit charters had to be approved by judges who often denied permissions if they did not approve of the religious practices of the people proposing the nonprofit. And in southern states like Arkansas, African-American churches were tolerated, but civil rights organizations, for example, were not. So you can see how sociocultural considerations really impacted what nonprofits were allowed to form. So different from today. In general, nonprofits in the first half of the 20th century really closely resembled those in the 19th century in that they unfortunately typically serve the interest of white Protestant men living near the Great Lakes. But at the same time, trends toward public research centers, science-based medical centers, and more continued into the second half of the 20th century and contributed to the growth of the nonprofit sector overall. Now, during this period, the U.S. was also in the middle of World War II, and Americans really made an effort to give of their time to support the troops from their home. So this is the first time in U.S. history that people really came together to do fundraising on such a global scale. 
So U.S. residents were conserving resources and sending supplies to troops overseas. And at this time, the YMCA Salvation Army and National Jewish Welfare Board worked together to create the United Service Organization for National Defense, or USO. And you've probably heard of the USO, and you've heard of the USO tours and the performances of artists who were popular at that time. The American Red Cross also at this time had an incredible campaign where they raised millions of dollars, recruited over 100,000 nurses, and started the nation's first ever blood donation program that was related to war. Now, between the 40s and 60s, nonprofit wages, so we're getting behind the scenes a little bit, nonprofit wages declined slowly because of the economy, but from the 60s onward, they increased. And nationally, there had been one formal nonprofit organization for every 1,790 people in 1900. By 1940, there was one nonprofit for every 2,590 people. So you you can see that increase. But by 1970, there was one nonprofit for every 848 people in the U.S. And by 1990, there was one for every 423. So there are three proposed reasons for this growth that historians cite. So one, growing wealth in America, of course, so recovering from the Great Depression and increasing expendable income. Two is the influence of great society programs under President Lyndon B. Johnson and the civil rights movement. So the combination of having more wealth to give away, more government programs concerned with basic needs, and grassroots activists and advocates fighting for the basic rights of minority groups. Now, growing wealth hasn't always meant more donations and more volunteers because they have free time, but with more wealth, people do purchase more services, including services from nonprofits. Now, the Great Society programs began the trend of increasing federal subsidies for nonprofits to what we see today. In comparison to the New Deal, which did not allow private entities to receive funding. So in 1962, federal funding for nonprofits was at just 0.4% of the gross domestic product, but that increased to 4.44% by 1997. Finally, the civil rights movement encouraged courts to stop making such discriminatory decisions on who could start a nonprofit or not. So these grassroots organizations were finally able to gain legal status as nonprofits. So that's organizations like the NAACP. So if you want to get really specific and in the weeds about this, in 1969, the Tax Reform Act is what gave us Section 501c3, which many of you probably have that designation for your nonprofit, and that's designated in the Internal Revenue Service Code. And it says that any charity in the U.S. that fits these certain requirements is a private foundation, which means they have a principal fund managed by their own trustees or directors. And once they legally had that status as a charitable organization, they got tax exemptions to their donors. And that you know led to a huge surge in 501c3 applications 
And these 501c3s were also later allowed to legally spend up to $1 million per year on lobbying efforts. So this gave them a much bigger voice in government. So that was in 1976. The bill was supported by the Coalition of Concerned Charities. And by 1980, the nonprofit sector was referred to as the third sector, and it was really starting to influence the corporate world in the United States. Now, in the last 20 years, one thing that really changed the nonprofit world is the advent of the internet. So in 1991, when the World Wide Web was out for the public to use, this changed the nonprofit world, the world at large, of course, but the nonprofit world as well. In 2012, $2.1 billion were generated in nonprofit donations from the online giving space. So that is something, if you're not already there, this is something that has been going on for almost two decades. So you need to make sure that you are on top of that online giving platform that you're using. Social media also helps nonprofits get much larger followings, and it's a great way to create memes and generate huge social movements online. And we get into that, and maybe we will get into that for an episode. So how social media, we've talked about social media before, like the ins and outs of how to use it for your nonprofit, but really tracking how it's impacted activism and advocacy, that's something that we might have to do. So one of the questions that I always have and that I think about Almost every day of my business that I'm working with all these nonprofits who are supporting some of the people who need the most help in our society. When the U.S. was formed, nonprofits or these volunteer organizations were filling gaps that a young government could not. They were providing services that, you know, this fledgling government could not provide for. But now that we've been around for a few hundred years, I often wonder what is stopping our government from providing these services directly instead of funneling money to all of these different private organizations. Well, I have some other thoughts on that, but I just want to leave that thought with you. Why do we need so many nonprofits? Why are there so many gaps in services and advocacy that we have to fill privately instead of through government services? So some people say it's because, you know, they believe people have the right to choose where they get these services from rather than always getting them from the government. So that is another thread that I want to just kind of leave there for you. And we'll have to pick back up on it at another point. But I really do want you to think about that. Why are these services being provided by our tax dollars, right? Now, I do want to say that we owe a debt of gratitude to the people on the ground who work for nonprofits and provide these basic services and often take so little money for doing so. And I want to say we are especially indebted to women. 74% of nonprofit sector workers are women. This is from GuideStars, Women in Profits Then and Now. But even though women make up so much of the nonprofit sector, they only comprise about 43% of the nonprofit boards. So board of directors are lacking in women. 
And that number drops to 33% for nonprofits with revenues of 25 million or more. And that's from nonprofit quarterlies, women in power or not so much gender in the nonprofit sector. So women are doing the boots on the ground work of nonprofits, but they are not represented as much in leadership of nonprofits. Now, again, this is all why it's important to know the history of nonprofits. Maybe you have some insights and some thoughts to add onto this point. Basically, I want you to know that having an understanding of the history of nonprofits in the United States is important in looking forward and understanding even the situation that we're in right now at this moment. The future of nonprofits truly is in your hands as a nonprofit worker or a nonprofit leader, even as an academic working at a public institution of higher ed. If you want to learn more about this topic, I definitely encourage you to check out the research of David Hammack or Hammack. He is a scholar in nonprofit history, and a lot of the material from this episode came from his article, Nonprofit Organizations in American History, from the journal Research Opportunities and Sources. And We also learned a lot from Nonprofit Hubs, a brief history of nonprofit organizations and what we can learn. And we will also link those in the blog post. So if you want to go read them and get a little bit more in depth on this topic, definitely check those out in the blog post. All right, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for joining me today. And I hope to see you back here next week. And in the meantime, good luck with your nonprofit.